Hey everybody, it is Eric and Luke back with you here on Thursday, April 23rd to talk about stuff. How are you, Luke? I'm well. How are you, Eric? Dude, I, I'm having a really good day. I got some good news. Okay. Are you ready for it? No, but go, go ahead. Okay, if you're not ready for it, I don't want to share the good news. I'm ready. Are you sure? I'm sure. Okay, the good news is that yesterday it was revealed through one of the NHL owners that hockey's coming back and we're looking for the season to begin in July. They're going to have four, three or four different sites in which three or four games are going to be played each at each site per day until the season's done and they go into the playoffs. Hmm. So you know what I have to say to that? What do you have? <clears throat> are, you, are you as excited as I am about the NHL season that will start? I, I don't think I've ever been as excited about anything ever as you are excited about the NHL season coming back. So, so no. Do you want to know how excited I am? How excited? I have been – so this right here, I, I need to explain to our audience who aren't Boston Bruins fans what I would, what I just played for you. It is the goal horn and, and subsequent um, song, goal song for the Boston Bruins. Whenever they score, that goal horn and the uh, song ensues when they, when they score at home. And I have been listening to it probably all day. Like I may – it's about a minute – in 17 seconds, I have listened to it for maybe a total of an hour oh, on repeat. I'm really curious who wrote the lyrics to that song. What lyrics? There are no lyrics needed. I'm, no lyrics. I'm just saying, I'd, I'd, like, I'd, I'd like to meet that person and learn about how they, how they constructed such a, a wonderfully uh, worded, you know, lyrical masterpiece for you to sing. When your team scores a goal. Music doesn't need lyrics. Especially when you score a goal. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, obviously. I think it's. I think it's fair to say that I am going to be outmatched today, everyone. I did. I did not come prepared, and Eric did. So kudos to him. I'm drinking my energy drink. <laughs> um, hey, I actually had an idea for an opener. If you don't, if you don't mind, I know this is the opener. What better of an opener do you need than the than the opening of of hockey? My, uh, I'm going to try not to. Uh, uh, I think I already rolled my eyes, but I'm going to try not to. No, I, I was hoping we could do something that, at the risk of being a little bit sacrilegious, uh, something we could share maybe the Bible story we think is the funniest. Uh, wait. Uh, someone said go stars. Goodness gracious. Oh, my. Oh, go stars. Tyler Sagan, huh? Oh, man. Tyler, I like Tyler Sagan. You know, Tyler Sagan got traded from the Bruins. He got drafted by the Bruins. And um, he got traded to the stars because he enjoyed partying too much. I hope the people in the chat understand that uh, you are only making the problem worse by talking about hockey to Eric. So we're going to move on. And worse or better? 
I'm going with Wives for the Benjamites. I think that's the winner for me. And for, for those who don't know, that's a story in the book of Joshua, toward the end of the book of Joshua, uh, where because of something awful that the Benjamites do, the, Isra- the rest of Israel punishes them by saying, um, you can't take any of our, our women for your wives. The problem is they had so devastated the population of that tribe um, that it looked like the tribe was going to die out. And so they don't want to break their oath where they said, we're not going to give you any of our daughters. But they also don't want to let the tribe of Benjamin die. And so they go to the Lord. And this is the solution that they come up with. Once a year during this special festival, while the young women go dancing uh, through the woods, the men of, of Benjamin were allowed to jump out of the bushes and grab a wife. It's a great story. What? That's crazy, man. Yes. So where can people read that? It's at the end of Joshua. Okay. I think I think it's Joshua. I don't know the exact chapter, but it's in those last few chapters of Joshua. Great story. So the by and we had no prep. You didn't tell me about this. To me, our our, our opening was me celebrating that hockey was about that was going to begin. Now we're talking July today. Today's uh, we're towards the end of April, so that's like May. That's like two more months. That really stinks. I hope it comes back sooner, but who knows? Anyway, I my, just. I just hope it's not going to be two months of this being the opener every time. Challenge accepted. <laughs> why did you? Why would you even put that in at the? I wasn't even thinking about that until you just said that. Um, now I, you know, I, I, I just can't help myself sometimes. Um, well, now it's most, my fault. Most of the time, it is your fault. I blame you. So, and I'm pretty sure my wife did, as I told her about the good news this morning. She did go, oh, poor Luke. So um, we'll we'll try and make today's show not all about hockey, but I can't. I'm just my excitement is is overtaking me right now. And there are a few things right now that people get excited or are happy about. Um, people are excited about watching a lot of of television shows and and all this other stuff. Um, Yo, your boy Josh is killing it in the comment section. <laughs> you referred to it as their their romantic efforts as Bush League. I like that. So my favorite story, and it's not really a funny story. It's actually a tragic story. It's one that I used to illustrate the importance of the regulative principle of worship. Wait, I didn't say I didn't say favorite. I said funniest. Yeah, I said funny. I meant funny. Did I say okay. favorite? I meant funny. Um. Oh my. God. Who, how do you know this Nancy person, and why is she clamoring for the Stanley Cup to be – oh, I get it. I, hey, Dallas, uh, I think it would be good for hockey for a non-traditional hockey market to win to win the Cup. I just hope it's not this year uh, because, you know, the Bruins, this is one of their last big chances to do it. So um, to stay on point, my one of my the funniest stories to me isn't actually a funny story. It's a story of, of Aaron – um, you know, uh, forming the golden calf for Israel to worship. And I think that that is an illustration of um, why it's important for us to worship God in the way that he desires to be worshiped and not the way that we desire to worship him. So we are to come to God on his terms and not our own. Uh, but the funny part is actually, actually extra biblical. Have you ever seen that Key and Peele skit of, of the, um, the substitute teacher trying to, you know, take attendance and he mispronounces everything. So whenever I read Aaron in the Bible, even from the pulpit, I might've actually said this before. I think I have pronounced his name a -A (laughs) Ron. And when we get to, and it is almost difficult for, it is so hard for me to, um, to say a -A Ron or, or like when that happens to go, 
ooh, you dumb messed up, Aaron. So that's my Eric. You started so well, and you have twice in the past minute just opened yourself up to uh, uh, teasing. So now you're going to get it. So number one, you missed the funniest part of that story. As much as I love the Key and Peel sketch, the funniest part of that story is when uh, Moses comes back down, and Aaron tells Moses, "Oh, it just jumped out." <laughs> also. I think it's hilarious that you would pick a city full of white people as a non-traditional hockey market. That's rich. Um, wait, Dallas, you mean? Yes. It's a non-traditional it's a hockey market because it's 100 degrees in the wintertime. Like, how do you – it doesn't get any less – like, your traditional hockey market markets are your cold climates, are uh, Canada, uh, New England, uh, Minnesota, Michigan – Ohio, Pennsylvania, um, uh, Illinois. Uh, Illinois is a state, right? Well, oh. we, we, we homeschool. So according to Harvard, we don't know these things very well. <laughs> are we going to bring that, that one up today? Uh, my wife did ask, ask me if we could use that as a topic. Uh, 70 de- True has 70 degrees Christmas time. That's just, that's unbiblical. I mean, how can you celebrate a uh, little baby Jesus coming into the world when it's 70 degrees out? Is, there, is this the time when we're supposed to start singing In the Bleak Midwinter together, the world's best written and least accurate Christmas hymn? Uh, I don't think I've heard it, and that might be a good thing. Oh, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just tell you a few words. In the, in the bleak midwinter, frosty wind made moan. Earth stood hard as iron, water like a stone. Snow had fallen, snow on snow, snow on snow, in the bleak midwinter, long, long ago. And it's a song about Jesus. What? (laughs) Well, it's kind of like, um, so here's a hymn. uh, Here's a hymn that I actually, I I do like a lot of hymns. Um, But there's one that a lot of people treasure. I think it's wonderfully written, except for a single line. And if I could extricate that line um, out of a song, it would make it infinitely better. But every time I hear it now, I cringe, which is um, the old rugged cross. Ooh, I want to see if I can figure out what line it is. I will. I, how about this? I promise not to hit that song in the next five minutes if you can think of what song that is. Okay. Okay. Well, we well we continue. Oh, what, what, I'm gonna grab grab the lyrics and see if I can identify the line. You're a, you're like a classically trained worship leader, man. You can't like you can't recall the whole song in like it's a classic. So so the problem is because I I you know I did church music for a living. Um, I I've done hundreds of songs. So uh, that that's just one of uh, countless in my catalog. So no, I can't recall the lyrics uh, at will. That makes me sad inside. Well, I had to bring you down somehow with all this hockey nonsense. I'm glad I found a way. What kind of what kind of nonsense? I'm looking for lyrics. I'm done talking. What kind of nonsense? Whoa, whoa, oh, oh. Now, if you're asking if I do that at home when the Bruins score, my wife will comment below 
and tell you the truth. I do. All right. I'm I'm gonna guess um has a wondrous attraction for me. No. Hmm. Hold up. Let me let me pull up. Let me screen share. It's not that hard. I I it's a beautiful song, except for a single just uh... Well, I got I got my guess, right? So now so now you just have to tell me what it was. Okay. And exchange it someday for a crown. Hmm. Because, and I'll tell yeah. you why, uh, we do receive a crown uh, uh, when we um, go into glory, when we enter glory. However, um, it's there's no exchange there. Um, we are there because of the cross. We're there because of the old rugged cross. The, the, old, the old rugged cross brings us into glory. It is the work of Christ. That song would be so much better if it was changed. But wait, isn't that basically what the lyric says in a yeah. sort of poetic way? Nope. It says exchange uh, as if you, you are You don't subscribe to substitutionary penal atonement? Of course I do. Okay, so this is just a fancy poetic way of saying that. Uh well, I've never, I've, I've never fancied myself a poet. Although I, although I do read many of the Puritans, and they, they write very poetically. Um, there is, I mean, the the exchange, right? So let's talk about the great exchange, right? Um, as I will often say, our garbage is exchanged for Christ, um, gold. We are. Our sinfulness is taken up by him. He has made sin who knew no sins that we might be made the righteousness of God. So our, we are given Christ's righteousness in exchange for our sinfulness. It's wonderful. Um, however, uh, you need to pause and read Nancy's comment. Uh, which one? The most recent. It, uh, till my trophies at last I lay down, as in the Stanley Cup. Oh, my good Nancy's on point. I like Nancy. Nancy's talking some trash. I like it. She's she's trying to poke the bear a little bit. Go on. You're making a theological point. Um, that the cross, the cross has as much to play in our uh, eternal home in the new heavens and the new earth um, as the crowns that we receive in glory. So I, I don't see it as I almost get the the imagery, and again, I could be wrong. The author might ha not have this intent. All right, so the the authorial intent by whoever wrote it might not be there. Um, but this is how, when I hear it. This is what I envision. I'm exchanging the cross of Christ for a crown of glory, and I reject that notion. God, in his in his graciousness, gives that crown of glory because of the cross. That's it. How is that different? I, it's incredibly different. It's incredibly different. You're not. There's no exchange. I'm not giving up the cross. I'm there because of the cross. We are all. Oh, I, okay. Okay. Yeah. I see. Yeah. I see. Okay. See, this is why. That, see, the folks, uh, the people who watch this, should watch like what we say after the show. Because last uh, was it Tuesday? We had a great conversation about um, some some theology and the importance of of pastors to get a good theological education. Although Luke rejects that idea. He thinks that you should just be able to read the Bible. That's all you need. And, um, and, and you don't need any sort of education. Whereas I, on the other hand, think oh. that, think that the, the scriptures, um, 
you know, encourage us and, and admonish us to, to receive some sort of training and education, um, not only as Christians, as faithful believers in Jesus Christ, but also as, as pastors and clergy and theologians. So, um, you know, maybe if, if you picked up a book once in a while, you could see the difference. For, for the sake of staying on topic, I'm not going to uh, tell the people just how false that statement was. But uh, I, I do li- I like Andy's comment, though. Is the exchange in reference to the cross as an emblem of suffering and shame, the idea that we are exchanging uh, uh, shame for glory? I, 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 yeah, I like that. And, uh, president Rice, uh, for those who don't know Andy, he is the president of Berkshire Institute for Christian Studies. Um, and a friend of mine, that's a, that's a good point. I'm going to have to study the lyrics a bit more. I, I appreciate that. Thank you, Andy. Well, um, I you know though, Eric, I think you, what you just did is actually really, really something important to do. Um, we should think about what we sing mm-hmm. in church. Oh, that, that, that is something that I really think in some ways we lost um, grip of with the influx of a lot of the new worship music in like the nineties, early two thousands. Now I think it's getting a lot better. Mm-hmm. I, I think, I think a lot of the new uh, worship writers are uh, writing from deeply biblical uh, ideas and, and even just la- language, just the language. Well, well, first off, I think you, uh, I just want to push back a little bit because I'm not sure painting um painting them in such a broad brush is, yes. is so let's say this it, it's getting worse and getting better so yeah. I, I think i think the worst uh sort of element of modern worship music is as bad as it's ever been mm. but within that rough i think there are some diamonds for example uh the gettys oh yeah the gettys are phenomenal and but but my that's my point is i don't know anyone who was writing like they were 15 years ago that's true so, so uh who's writing like them now I think I think there are a few in a similar vein. Okay, um, but um, there's one band I've been listening to, City of City Light, I think, or City Alight, um, which mm-hmm. a church member recommended. They're tr- they're tremendous. Okay. Um, there are a couple others like uh, the Village Church has put some stuff out. Um, mm-hmm. Austin Stone Worship is really good. Um, those are some good uh, good bands. But but I appreciate I, the the point I wanted to make was. Um, it matters, it, or at least it should matter a great deal, what we put in the mouths of um, our people. Mm-hmm. The, the words that we uh, give them to sing, that those words matter. So yeah. song, song is, a, is a wonderful way of eliciting emotion. I don't think we should be ashamed of feeling in the church, um, but songs have words, or at least real songs do, ones that aren't one vowel. Uh, and they... Songs have words. Are you, to, are you trying to take a shot at, at the goal song for the bird? Well, I'm either taking a shot at that or at the modern worship choruses. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Or, I mean, if we're going to sing many of the modern worship songs, you might as well sing the goal song for the Bruins because they have about as much uh, edifying value. Um, but yeah, the words the the words that we sing matter. So I, I actually appreciate that you're, I think you're wrong in this case, but I think I appreciate the question that you're asking. And I think we should be more willing to challenge sort of the beloved songs. Well, okay, uh, this song makes me feel good, but what does it say? Yeah, and and I will freely admit that I could very well be wrong on Wow. 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 This is the first, I think it's the first time this has happened in like 10 episodes. Pigs aren't flying. (laughs) (laughs) Do we want to, do we want to get to the topic at hand today? 
Uh, I even forget what the topic at hand is. So, uh, Luke, you want to enter? So, I'll bring it up. Um, here we go. Um, what is the what does the Bible teach, or what do we think? Because um, I think there's some charity on these things. But what does the Bible teach about local church leadership? But you and I fall under a similar conviction. So, we're going to be talking in that in an echo chamber right now. Well, we have people in the comment section who are welcome to sound off if they disagree. And as always, I'm sure you and I will find uh, nits to pick. That's fair. I'm I'm a I'm the king nitpicker, picker of nits. So uh, lay out your just in a, in a as basic or simple way as possible. What do you think the Bible teaches about local church leadership? So I think we see two offices of local church leadership, two two general offices. So one's a one specific and one is a general term for a number of different roles. So first I'll go with deacons slash deaconesses. Um, so you have deacons and deaconesses, and we see their establishment in Acts 6, uh, where their responsibility is to care for the physical needs of um, the believers there. And particularly the, the problem um, at, in the church was that there, um, I believe it was the Gentile uh, women were being left out of the distribution, the daily distribution. Um, not only that, but they needed to make sure that people were properly receiving communion. So um, we see in there a picture of the role of deacons and deaconesses, which were to care for those um, uh, in the church with, that had physical needs. Their, their scope was leadership in physical matters of the church. And then we also see um, elders. Um, other terms in the New Testament refer to elders and overseers, pastors. Um, that's all. I, I view that all as one um, role, but they also serve uh, as elders. Um, you could have people who are evangelists. You can have people that are teachers and shepherds. And, and some of these different roles that Paul lays out in Ephesians 4, they all stem back to an elder's role. Um, so you see elders and deacons and elders lead by spiritual means. They give themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. They oversee the church in spiritual matters. Now, this can get convoluted in a, in a lot of different things. So some might say, well, your deacons should be the ones that handle the budget. I would say, yes, amen. However, um, there's a qualification there. Uh, first off, the budget should be drafted or at least should be directed by those who have um, that have spiritual authority. So those who have the spiritual authority are saying, here is what God is, has given to us as priorities. Therefore, we should draft a budget based on these principles. So they deal with it in a macro sense or in the big picture, and your deacons and deaconesses handle it on a on the more micro or, or um, specific matters. Yeah, you've you've just raised so much. It's difficult to even know how, where to begin. I guess I guess you we should agree with me. I, I do. <laughs> okay, so let's, so let's talk about it. So, um, I, let's start just with the roles. Okay. Because I so appreciate you raising Acts chapter uh, six. I think I think Acts chapter six is a any any. I mean, there's there's lots of passages, especially in the New Testament, that help us understand. Uh, proper church leadership, but I know for me, Acts chapter six is maybe the key one in understanding roles because it tells us exactly why there are different roles. Right? There are those who are called to the spiritual leader leadership of the church, that is the elders, and there are physical needs of the church that are important, 
that need to be taken care of, but not by those leaders. So I, 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 that, that's an important starting point, I think. All right, we've got some questions in the comment section already. Are prophets elders? In the, general, we, in the general sense, I think yes. Are we going to have to get into the discussion today where, where there will be disagreement on what prophecy is in the New Testament? Uh, we don't need to get into that now because I think that I think I our disagreement over prophecy is probably going to um, divert us in a direction that needs its own podcast. So that's true. Fair I, wanna, enough. I, I think um, so. Our prophets, elders, yes, Matt, I believe so. Um, but Luke and I probably disagree on what the role of a prophet is in the New Testament, and that's okay. Um, now, to Carolyn's um, yeah. question, which I think is is far more important because we are we and we have to recognize this as we're talking about it, um, that we are talking about something that is very practical in nature to both of our churches and anyone who's listening that's a part of a church. And I and I pray that you are, if you're listening to this, you are a part of a church. Um, she asks, so I shouldn't be church treasurer and head of the finance committee. Um, <clears throat> I would first have to look to um, what, how does that play out in your local church? So I can say the, posi the positions that you and I just put forward are not how our current churches are set up. Um, our current churches are not set up that way, and we are not in a rush to move our church in that direction. Um also, Carolyn's part of Faith Evangelical Church, which Andy Rice um, was actually the former pastor of um, Great Brethren, and, and I know it's a great church and um, know a couple of people there. Um, so, Carolyn, just the short answer, uh, yes, continue to be the treasurer, continue to be the head of the finance committee. You're definitely fulfilling a role that would fall under that. Um, I pray that um, in, in East Church has its own limitations as well. Um, as far as we are required by law, as when we establish a, a church, um, uh, what do you call it? Um, church uh, bylaws and not the church covenant, but um, when you incorporate the, the, when you incorporate with your state, um, most require you to have a treasurer, have a president, have all these things that aren't really biblical terms. So like treasurer and finance committee, aren't biblical offices, but they should be filled with people who are, who meet those um, qualifications. So yeah. for someone who's a deacon or deaconess, um, they shouldn't be double-tongued, right? They shouldn't be double-minded. They should be trustworthy. Um, I, I imagine that if Carolyn's the, um, the treasurer and the head of the finance committee, she's probably trustworthy. Um, she listens to this. She must be good people, right? So, um, you know, I, so yes, you can uh, you can continue to be a treasurer, continue to be the, continue to do that. Your church needs you. God has called you to that. Um, I've at least had conversations. Um, I've had conversations with my church as well as my leadership. Um, we're continuing right now. Our church leadership essentially, deacons and elders are 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 functioning as one office. Um, well, pause, 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 pause for a minute because we're going to have an interesting discussion on on that because both of our churches are in that case. But I want to make a point here, which is that. Um, the point that Eric and I just made about elders and deacons does not mean those are the only roles within the church, right? Yep, there, there, right? There are lots of roles that need to be filled by lots of different people with lots of different kinds of gifts. Mm -hmm. So the idea here is not that we need to get rid of every committee and every head of a ministry and every head of a, you know, whether it's the treasurer or the 
clerk or it's not that we need to get rid of all these positions what we're talking about is what does church leadership look like and the way that you then delegate various roles within uh, the functioning of that church it, it is a different discussion and i think i think there there's a whole lot more leeway uh the there's look the new testament doesn't lay out line by line right a constitution for every church to follow there are some really key basic principles and the ones that we're talking about now are um who are the leaders and what are their roles? That doesn't mean that those are the only roles in the church. So I would say there's room for all sorts of different kinds of positions and committees and things if, if that's serving the mission of your church. But when it comes to the question of leadership, that's when we need elders and deacons. Yeah, absolutely. And, and a lot of church, and I think, I don't know exactly how um, our churches kind of got to where they are, you know, because our churches are, are uh, we're only a few hours away from one another, but it's actually the 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 setup that we have as con as a congregation is similar to what many Southern Baptist churches have um, set up, and um, you know most of your prominent scholars and theologians today um, that are come from that tradition would agree in the separation of elders and deacons and the roles in which we just described many many, so. Um, we have to recognize that we, we're very much alike uh, with them in our, in our structure, in our local church structure, and um, we should listen to, to wise counsel. Um, I encourage, like, if you're looking for good materials, Nine Marks hits it out of the park. I don't agree with them on, on all areas of, of theology, um, but they have, when it comes to ecclesiology, which is the study of the church, how the church is set up and leadership, they knock it out of the park. They do a tremendous job. Well, I think, I think too, talking about, well, how did we sort of get where we are? One of the things that I've had to learn and understand is that much of the disagreement is over a, a, a different use of different terms for the same position. Mm -hmm. So there are churches that use the term deacon to refer to elders. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, uh, that's one of the things that I've, I've sort of had to, had to try to um communicate within my own church is there there is within my church because of certain other churches around us who've had um experiences with what i would call like uh almost fascistic el elder elder run leadership mm -hmm. where i say the word elder and they immediately think oh well six people are going to make all the decisions mm -hmm. and i'm having to go no that's that's actually not what biblical eldership is in right. fact Biblical eldership, there are certain decisions they won't make because yeah. they're concerned with the pre teaching of the word and prayer. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think sometimes the confusion, it's not actually a disagreement about the importance of the various roles. It is a it, it's we end up talking past each other because we use either different words to refer to the same thing or the same word to refer to different things. Yeah, no, you're you hit it right on on the head, man, because. We need to define terms and what we mean by them because oftentimes when we dislike something, so if someone had a bad experience um, with a elder-led church, then all they're going to have to say is our elders are bad. Now, you could call them a different term. You could call them pastors. We have a, um, uh, a multiplicity of, el uh, of pastors. We have a pastor-led church, and we have six pastors, and you go, oh, okay, I can live with that. But really, it's just six elders who are leading the congregation. Now, the I think the uh, um, 
in leading a, a local congregation that it's um, elder led, but it's congregationally affirming, which is what we talked about on, on Tuesday after the show. We, we talked about it in our little tidbit after that. And, um, you know, you have, you have to have people that are leading. Um, Tom called me pro-fascist. Uh, I mean, you do support Lincoln. <laughs> oh my goodness. No. Um, I am, I am, uh, I would say I'm anti-fascist, but the, the, <laughs> the irony in that is that the anti-fascists are actually the fascists. But, um, you know, it, it's important to have a, a group that is leading, but that the congregation affirms their, their leadership. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I think that oftentimes when we see um, eldership in its worst sense, that it becomes abusive, that it, um, that it, uh, essentially, though that leadership team, um, that that core of elders, are leading in a way that is not glorifying to the Lord. So that that's important for us to recognize. Yeah, and there's there's obviously the issue where um, uh, before I make this point, I need to make another that you sort of made as an ancillary point that I think is actually a really important central one to make, which is that Eric and I both understand the position of pastor to be a position of an elder. I think this is another one of the things that sort of gets lost in the conversation is uh, people say, okay, well, there are elders and then there are pastors. Well, no, a pastor is just a paid elder or, yeah. or, or an elder that's uh, been given a, a particular position of authority. Yeah. But that's – we would – Eric and I would say that a pastor is an elder, that those, yeah. those um, titles are basically synonymous with each other. So do you consider yourself um, a co-equal? with with your other elders in your church or deacons yeah i i like i like the term first among equals yeah i i think that's a helpful term yeah and i think i think that has to do with um responsibility um that we as pastors are the first among equals in that leadership team at least that's that's how i think the bible sets it up and that means we don't have any greater authority than anyone else that's on that leadership team whether it's um deacons or the or whatever we call it, but essentially the functional elders. And we, we are the first among equals because we have the responsibility um, of leading in, in a particular way because oftentimes we're the one who's preaching the most. We have the, we have the pulpit, so to speak. And we're the ones who maybe by constitutions have um, specific authority based on that constitution. And um, we kind of, we have to spearhead many things within our congregation. Mm. Now, we've got some interesting um, discussion and questions here. Do your deacons meet? So I guess this is where we can sort of talk a little bit about sort of the actual um, operations of our own church leadership. So at my church, yes, the deacons meet. But currently, we have one position called deacon, which I would say serves both roles of deacon and elder. Uh -huh. uh, so the answer to your question is yes, we do. But I also – I think we're still trying to uh, – figure out how we can uh, honor both of those biblical um, roles. Because right now they're just kind of splurged into one. And I've got a great, I love my leadership. They're great people to work with. Um, but I, I, that has been a drum that I've been beating uh, quite a lot recently of Acts chapter six divides these roles. We're trying to do two things with one group of leaders. Yeah, and I think, and, and I've had that conversation, and we have, so we have a single elder, and essentially he, he's the chairperson of the board of deacons, 
Um, he's also the chairperson of our official board in our congregation. Um, in fact, the, the, our constitution stipulates that he's the president of the um, of the church. You know, so you have to go look at those secular terms in which we're required to have um, to maintain our um, incorporation. So, you know, our our deacons function at, in an elder role. They are responsible, as outlined in our constitution, as being spiritual leaders within the congregation. So essentially, we have a we have um, a plurality of elders in our congregation, but they're just called deacons and deaconesses. Mm-hmm. So um, we've had that conversation. Um, I'm, we've spent some time teaching through it, um, just with our our leadership. But also, I've had that. Um, I've caught a little bit bits and pieces, kind of thrown um, little pebbles out there when I preach and when I have Bible studies and when it might come up. Um, so whether our our deacons or leadership team, yeah, we we're actually meeting tonight at seven. Um, we got some things to discuss, and I'm really excited for it. And I love our our, our meetings, um, mostly because I'm a glutton for punishment, and I love meetings. So um, I really do enjoy them when things are happening. Um, when things aren't happening, they can be um, challenging. So yeah, we meet, and they by our constitution, they're, we're only supposed to meet six times a year, so it's every other month. But since I've been here, um, we've gone from meeting once a week to every other week. And, um, and, and yeah, and now during the COVID crisis, I mean, I've told them what, what else do you have to do? At least I think we're meeting tonight. Pretty sure we are. So, so Moose is raising an important point here and it kind of connects to a conversation we had, uh, last week, but I, I don't think we can avoid having this conversation, which is dealing with qualifications for deacons and elders. And I think I'm pretty close to your position where it seems to me clear that the New Testament um, requires uh, eldership to be male. But there is a real argument to be made, a biblical argument, that um, deacons could be men or women. Now, again, it brings up so many different things. I think we also have to bring up, and I think you mentioned this earlier, the practical realities of our church's constitutions. So I actually serve at a church that does not require that the leaders are – that the the deacons, which are really elders in biblical terms, are male. It just so happens that right now they all are men. Mm-hmm. Um, we have deacons and deaconesses, and it's interesting to see the way that sort of that dynamic plays out. Uh, but, but, I, but I'm currently at a church where that's not the case and where, there, where there's no, not a clear – uh, standard in that regard. And I would say this too, one thing that I think is important to keep in mind, especially when we're talking about, you know, you mentioned earlier, Eric, how eldership can sometimes become abusive. I think one of the ways it does it is by overstepping um, the, what would you call it, the procedures and the bylaws of the church. So there are certain elements of my church's constitution that I might think we have wrong or could be better. But I don't try to resolve those problems by then, by fiat, just declaring that we're going to do it differently, right? Yeah. Whether or not I like elements of our church constitution, it's the one we have. And so I use those bylaws and procedures to try to bring about the changes. I don't just say, well, I'm the pastor, therefore I get to make the decision we're going to do things differently now. I think that would dishonor the congregation. Yeah, you have to operate within the confines of your constitution. It's something that you inherit um, whether it's as a pastor or as a congregant. Um, and, and I'm a firm believer that 
I mean, if you've found a place where you can um, worship and serve the Lord and they're preaching the gospel, which is something that in, in many contexts is waning, um, there, are far, there are less and less churches that are preaching the gospel and, and they're often preaching a man-centered um, faith or, or whatever you want to call it, that uh, you stick it out. You, you stick it out um, as much as you can, um, regardless of the faults that you find there. So, like, I knew coming to our church, like, I read the Constitution and saw, like, oh, there's some significant issues. But then when I got here and asked, like, hey, who's read the Constitution? I was like, uh, you. <laughs> you know, you've read it. So it's kind of like, um, there, and I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit. You know, some have. But um, I, I've learned to become a great student of it because I know that, okay, we might eventually, and we've already made some changes to our Constitution. This past year, which was my first um my first full year and 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 had a business meeting um we made a constitutional change uh we changed some of the wording so that we could have more deacons and deaconesses um than were allowed in the um constitution so now now, now th things are really starting to get hairy in the comment section here i really like this uh the we've got a couple points here what should we start with all right we'll start with we'll start with mark's comment which i think is helpful uh, the Greek word we translate deacon is used for both men and women. Mm -hmm. I despise the term right. deaconess because they're just deacons. All right. I like That's that. That's why I love Mark. I So now that Mark – I agree with Mark. I don't despise it. I'm not going to go that far. Mark is Mark is an extremist um, in this area. Um, I, we, we found something that maybe I'm a bit more measured in. <laughs> and Mark is someone who I admire very much and um, – to, to find out that he's more extremist than I am in some areas. Nancy, could you be a bit more specific? Scriptural reference to what? We're happy to give you scriptural references to anything that we're talking about. Just let us know specifically what it is that um, you're, you're referring to. Should we take on uh, Matt's question? Yeah, uh, so, so that's easy. Should the um, Is teaching exclusive to elders? No, but the ability to teach uh, is specific to um, elders as a qualification for their office. Now, what does that mean specifically? Um, historically and contemporarily, is that, is that a word? Contemporarily? If it's not, I like it. Okay, contemporarily. Um, you can you can ask most. Um, that mean that doesn't mean that you have to be able to preach in the sense of being able to to preach for forty minutes. But you have to be able to unfold the scriptures for someone um, who, who asks. Or you have to, like, if, if I died on Saturday night or Sunday morning, I would hope that my um, elder would be able to open up the Bible and still give the word, um, you know, and still be able to, to proclaim the gospel. Yeah, and there's um, – oh, man, I, I like it. We're having some good discussion. Um, I would say this, too. We talked about how the terms pastor and elder are interchangeable. Also in the New Testament, the terms overseer and elder are interchangeable. So I wouldn't say that elders have the exclusive responsibility for teaching, but their responsibility for the oversight of any teaching that happens in the church, whether that's theirs or someone else's. Well, um, I believe it's in Hebrews where the author writes, I'm, I'm opening up my Bible, but – we are – the elders, the leaders of the church have to give an account before the Lord for, um, for their oversight of the congregation. Uh, and that is something that is, that is terrifying to me. 
that uh, for the time that I have been a pastor of, of my church and, and any other church, well, first is God's church, um, I have to give an account for it. So do the rest of my leaders, which is why it's so important, um, Luke, uh, even though I know you hate education, it's important for us to train up our leaders so that they can be wise and good at, at doing that. With with the way you're 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 sticking with this shtick, we're gonna have that's gonna have to be the next podcast so that I can defend my position. Uh, your this position of anti-education. All right, where what did you want to read? Hold on, I'm, I thought I'm wrong. I've used it so many times. C- carry on, I'll find it. Okay, so there's some interesting interesting uh, issues that are being brought up here, right? So let's start with the the one dealing with um. Uh, the qualification for elders to be men. And let's be clear, this is something that within our de- our denomination where there's great disagreement. And in fact, within my church, within my own leadership, there's disagreement. So Eric and I might disagree on whether this is a first, second, or third tier issue. I think we would both say it's not a first tier issue, right? This is not gospel. Um, it's not nature of Christ kind of stuff. But it is, But it is important, and it's important to know where you stand and why. So I don't think there is anywhere where scripture forbids women in eldership. The issue is that one of the qualifications that it seems to give is that they be a man. Now, there are some people who say, well, that was just a a cultural context, right? The reason that all the elders were men is because that all leaders at that time were men. And that really boils down to an issue of hermeneutics. How is it that you interpret um, qualifications for elders? Do you interpret them as... I, I guess I guess it's a different it's the difference between something being enumerated and something being recommended. Maybe uh, is there a place where it forbids women as elders? No. But the whole point of the argument is that all the qualifications for elders, all of them list men. So there's the first discussion that we can continue to have. But that's why we take that position. It's not because I can give you a chapter and verse that says women can't be elders. It's because I can give you multiple chapters and verses that say. Elders are men. Now, the other qualification issue we brought up was the issue on divorce, over which, again, there is great disagreement within the denomination and within many churches. I would say this, Carolyn. I think the point is not that divorce is unforgivable, right? Um, but there is, there, are certain, um, there is certain behavior that, according to the New Testament, disqualifies you for leadership. That doesn't mean that God won't forgive you or that the church won't forgive you or that the church won't uh, welcome you back when you repent. It's an issue of qualification for leadership. That's not an issue of forgiveness. That has more to do with – and this is where these things are connected. The question is what are the qualifications for a leader, not what do you have to do or be to be part of the church or to be forgiven uh, or to be valuable in the church for that matter. The the question is what are the qualifications, and I think that's where the discussion – um, gets interesting. So I, this is such a, this is such a nuanced area. I have to provide so many qualifications, but I will, this was actually a question that they asked me when I, when I candidated at my, at my church. Um, when I was interviewed, they asked if I thought that pastors could be, um, could be divorced. Uh, and I begrudgingly and, and, you know, I took no joy in saying, uh, no, you should not call a pastor who's divorced. Um, be- and the reason is this. So um, 
when when Moose shared the scripture above in First Timothy three two, um, the, when Paul talks about them being the husband to one wife, he's speaking specifically about um, bigamy. You know, um, bigamy is one. Never mind. He he's talking about two people being in a relationship, a man and a woman being in a marital relationship. Um, he is pushing back against polygamy. However, the I draw my conclusion about divorce in that um, so um, Carolyn, I would say so Carolyn's question is so the man whose wife moved out and demanded divorce because she wants her own life is now condemned. No, absolutely not. But we're not this isn't a salvation issue. this is a, a leadership issue, the qualifications for leadership. I, I, I think too, I think too we need to you know it's tough it's tough when we talk about these issues not to dovetail but this is actually a whole different discussion to be had yeah. which is uh, what should our understanding be of uh, the consequences of divorce within the church because just that one issue alone there is tremendous disagreement uh, between yeah. even even if you if you look at different um, conservative reformed Christians like I know that MacArthur and Piper talk about this differently when it comes to certain issues mm -hmm. yeah and i haven't listened to what they have to say i can uh, i can presume what they what they would say uh j mac is always going to be um <laughs> be a, a bit more conservative on things um but i would say you know it's not a salvation issue and the, the struggle is is one continually um if your spouse leaves you are you free to marry after that I, that's something I'm really uncomfortable talking about in this in this mm -hmm. scenario in, in how we're talking right now, um, because it is so sensitive. This is something that we need to talk about, um, kind of more specifically with people because it is so challenging and it's, and it's kind yeah, of emotional. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think that's a discussion we cannot have in a cursory manner. That'll we'll have to yeah. save that discussion for another day. Um, yeah. But we we do need to acknowledge the answer to that question is relevant to uh, qualifications for leadership. You know, at some at some point. You do have to, at least within your church, have that discussion so that you have an understanding of what the qualifications even are, which is what this whole discussion, I think, is about, whether it's the issue of divorce or of men and women. Uh, you know, what are the qualifications? If elder is, in fact, uh, an essential biblical role, if deacon's an essential biblical role, what are the qualifications? Yeah, and I would just, I would just reiterate, because I've had that, I've had many people say that before. So you're saying someone's condemned because they had a divorce. No, I'm not saying that, and the Bible's not saying that. Um, but we are saying that, you know, or at least I'm saying that I don't think that that person's qualified for the role of elder. And no one has a right to a particular role in the church. We really, as we come to Christ, we don't even have a right over our own lives. We're to live our lives um, with radical obedience to Christ and radically giving up all of who we are and handing it over to him. So we live for our brothers in Christ. We live for, um, for other people. And that means we don't have a sense of entitlement. Oh, I'm entitled to be an elder or I'm entitled to be a deacon or, or anything like that. If someone said, so you're saying I can't, if someone was upset because they felt they could not fulfill a certain role because of their divorce, um, I like and I, and I mean not disappointment's one thing, but like 
storming off and, and being like super upset and, and getting angry, I think reveals um, probably a greater reason for them not being quiet. Yeah. And this is, uh, we won't get into the weeds because you're right, it deserves its own discussion. Um, but I feel too like in some ways, this another dovetail that we could follow is, okay, so we have um, views on these things, but how do you handle uh, being uh, other than other than the obvious uh, of answer of well leave and start your own church. Well, how do you handle being in a church that takes a different position on these things? So you know I'll just I'll just ask you directly. Uh, so you and I agree on the biblical qualification for elder um, that one of those qualifications is that he is a man. However, I will tell you I have served under female elders um, and I accepted their authority. So, uh, or, or to take another example, let's say you're, let's say that you're part of a church that hires a pastor who is a divorcee. Um, even if you think that's wrong, I would say you should still, as long as he is pastor, accept the authority the church has given him. Where do you stand on that? I and, agree. Yeah. Okay. I, I agree. It's kind of like you can, you can disagree with your government, but you still have to submit to their authority. You know, um, and just to Tom's point, I would, you know, to counter with that. Because um, he asked, what about what 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 if uh, the divorce occurred before salvation? Well, say someone robbed a bank before they were saved, and they weren't caught, and they and they got half a million dollars. What does repentance look like there? Well, repentance looks like, I don't know, restitution. <laughs> you know, so you so you get that five hundred thousand um, dollars legally, and you bring it back to the bank that you stole it from. Um, for yeah, and, we, and, we, and we, we do need to be clear here, and this is why I, we're getting into it. We didn't want to, but we're getting into it. Um, every situation is going to be very unique, right? So I wouldn't say to someone who uh, is divorced from like an alcoholic domestic abuser that in order to make things right with God, they need to go back uh, to their husband and get beat up some more. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Right, so we're so we're not saying that all all cases of divorce are exactly the same. That's not right. the point. The, the this discussion is simply about qualification for those two essential roles. And you would agree that there are biblical, biblical grounds, right? There are biblical grounds where divorce is permissible. Yeah, and 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 that's and that that's why I think this sort of deserves its own discussion because there's so much to talk about. Um, it's a, it's permissible, but not in church. That's 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 an important distinction. Um, Matt Moose makes it interesting. So apparently, I think this might have to be the next uh, subject because they they want to talk about it. So I think for today, we'll we're going to drop the matter. But we we have heard you. We have heard you in the comment section that this is something. Um, you know what? I think this is something that we don't talk about in the church because it's uncomfortable. Because so many of us look. I have friends and family members who are divorced. Like this, it's rampant in our country. So it's 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 we're surrounded by it. Uh, I think we shouldn't be afraid to talk about it. Mark's comment shows the courageousness that comes with one who is radically saved by Christ, who has been born again and is turning away from their sin. He uh, mentions a guy that was in his church in California who came to Christ and had outstanding warrants. That Mark walked him. Um, walked him to uh, that place so that he could turn himself in and spent 90 days in jail. Praise be to God. Um, God is truly glorified in the midst of, of that repentance. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. 
Um, I, I mean, it's not cool that he had outstanding warrants, but I mean, it really, what what value does our faith have um, if we're not willing to do things that are challenging in the midst of it, things that go against conventional wisdom, things that um, look foreign to outsiders? Well, and I think, too, it, it strikes at the heart of this discussion, which is um, the – all, all of these things we're talking about, our, our concern should be what honors God, right? Yep. Not, not how you or I feel about it, one way or the other. Not, not on what we think the consequences of a certain decision might be, right? Well, well that's not going to work. Or, well, what about this situation or this person? Certainly in a pastoral sense, right? When someone comes into my office, I'm not just going to spit Bible verses at them until they see things my way. I'm going to listen to them and treat them like a person. Um, but when we're talking about these kinds of issues and what the Bible teaches, the, qu- the, the key question is, what honors God? And that should be the question that all of us are asking. And if we're going to disagree, let's disagree on that point, not on any of the, the ancillary stuff. You're right, man. Thanks. You're right. you're, you're, I am at point. You're, you're, as my dad would say, you're a fart smeller. What? You're a fart smeller. A smart fella. <laughs> All right, yeah, that's a new. I gotta say, that's a new one. Um, any other? This is. You know what? This was great. I so appreciate everyone getting involved and in, in, um, throwing something at us. Uh, I'll, Nancy, we'll we'll read your comment later. I think we're gonna have to have the discord the divorce discussion on its. Unless you wanna. I mean, do you have another like hour that you wanna do this? Maybe. We can try to we can try to do the what divorce. if it's a COVID nineteen COVID nineteen twenty <laughs> okay Ooh, what so, better so, things do we have to do so so either we need to save this for another day or we need to have the whole discussion of what does the Bible say about divorce I'm gonna leave that one up to you boss um, it is a very nuanced conversation it is challenging um, I I Nancy says divorce is something that takes place in the past I believe you are comparing it to a current act of homosexuality. Um, now I'm distracted by what Meredith said. I, this is this whole comment section is really hard for me to follow. Um, if someone is a former homosexual, that makes a difference. Are you comparing divorce, which is in the past, to someone currently practicing homo? You know, um, and I think she's responding to to Moose and I. Do Moose and Nancy know each other? I I don't know. <laughs> okay, if they do, this is a great conversation for them to have, and we should first and foremost remember that we are each. Um, saved by Christ, that the same blood that covers you covers me and covers them as well. So we should guard our conversations. And I know sometimes I fall short of this, and I'm sorry. Um, but we do need to um, be careful and guard our conversations and our tongues with charity and love. Mm-hmm. So, and it's hard to read that sometimes in the comments. I think it's everything has been positive today, which is good. But I would just say this: there is a thought. Um, and I have, you know, I'm still developing my views on, on divorce, so I'll be, um, I'll be upfront with that. I have changed over time as I've changed with my views on homosexuality um, and, and where prior to coming to Christ, what, do I, what did I care? And then coming to Christ, my views obviously changed. So, um, you know, someone who's living in perpetual homosexuality or same-sex attraction, one could say, or there is a thought, that one who is divorced and remarried is living in perpetual sin. 
um, because they are still technically married to the one from whom they've divorced, if that makes sense. So although I see Nancy's point and to a to some extent I agree with what what she's saying, um, I can I can also see the other side. So I, th- I think this is where um, it is helpful to sort of lay out the, the basic positions on this because there are several different positions when it comes to the biblical understanding of divorce. And they run the whole gamut, right? Mm-hmm. Position number one is that essentially divorce doesn't matter. You can get a divorce, you can get remarried, and it makes no difference to God. Mm-hmm. Um, position number two is that uh, marriage is real and divorce is real, right? So the idea is that uh, marriage between a man and a woman is a as a, a, a sanct. It, it is truly a it's something that God does in uniting a man and a woman. And when they divorce, there's a real separation, yes. right? The third position, which Eric was talking about, is the position that marriage is a real connection that's permanent, right? So the idea would be that when you marry someone, no matter what piece of paper you sign, you're basically married to them for life. Um, I tend to fall more in the middle where I would say that uh, divorce – That I mean, look, Scripture says God hates divorce, but I think divorce is real. I think you actually can sever the, the bond of marriage in a very real way with someone. Uh, now, there are certainly consequences to that for you, for any children that are involved, and, and in this case for qualifications for various positions in the church. But I take the position that um, divorce is real. So in other words, if you, if you marry someone and you get divorced and then you get remarried, I would never advise that person to leave their second spouse and go back to the first one. In fact, the Old Testament actually forbids that. Yeah. I, it, I think <clears> – <throat> I think this is this is this is so challenging a topic. It really is, and you can get into the weeds and so much. And I really, I do like to err on the side of grace, and and I think that we need to be careful. We need to understand how significant it is when someone um, gets a divorce. Like that is something that is um, that that we should not be celebrating for sure. But on the other sense, I mean, there are so many real scenarios in which uh, men and women get divorced and you do almost celebrate it. You know, like that woman who got beat to heck by her husband. um, I mean, to me, violence against women is one of those things that infuriates me that, um, you know, we as men are called to treasure and protect women. Um, when it comes to our wife as husbands, we are called to love her as Christ um, loved the church, um, and so much so that he gave up his life for her. So that doesn't mean you give up your life by beating your wife. It means you give up your life in protecting and cherishing and caring for her. You should be washing her with the word, not washing her with your fist. So there are certainly some scenarios in which um, – I mean, just as pastors, we look at it and go, "Man, we need to we need to help this person out of this situation." But but I think too, this is where we 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 always want to come back to what do the scriptures say? Because it's easy to start getting into this game of, "Well, this person's in a horrible situation, therefore we need to take their side." I think there are plenty of situations where divorce is not only appropriate; it's the right thing to do. That doesn't mean that everyone who's in a bad marriage deserves a divorce, which is I think this is the problem is we talk about this issue in extreme sometimes. 
where either no divorce is legitimate, right? You're married forever to the first person you married, and no other marriage you have can have any effect whatsoever, which I think completely contradicts what the Old Testament teaches about divorce, which is that it allows it. It, it says it's because our hearts are hardened, right? Right, right exactly. But, but it allows it. Mm -hmm. um, and then on the other hand, for people to just say, well, you know, the marriage didn't really work and they weren't happy, I'm going, what biblical re justification is that for something that God says he hates? Like there's got there's got to be it, this is a difficult conversation, but we need to be able to have it in a way that honors the scriptures and not just our feelings. Well, well, think about this. Jesus promises us a joy and a jo joy that will be fulfilled. But that joy is given to us in Christ and as Christ is made central in our lives. He does not give us a, a spouse for our joy to be complete. Our complete joy is found in him. Yeah. When we say, oh, I'm just not happy, well, good, you weren't made to be happy. <laughs> like, you've, you've made your life about yourself, and, and your marriage isn't about you. Your marriage is about God. Your marriage is about um, spurring your spouse on in your complete union made one flesh and glorifying the Lord in the midst of your marriage. And that, what greater glory can there be than these, like, oh, I'm unhappy, but you know what? Christ has called me to make this man or woman a more faithful follower of him. And maybe if you can't stand your spouse, maybe that's God, I'm calling you to crucify your flesh and get over yourself. Now, that's different. Um, Tom is my new favorite. <laughs> <laughs> well, how is that pro-fashion and anti- um, how am I anti-happy? I'm singing goal songs. I am, I am a Hold on. Uh, Eric, I have to tell a quick story here. So okay. uh, when, I, when I was a young man, part of the summer ministries team, I, f I forget which passage it was now. It was one of the passages where um, Jesus talks about suffering for his namesake. Um, and so I led a devotional with a bunch of high schoolers. And I'm at the time, I'm like 19 on this passage. And I spent 20 minutes talking about how uh, true Christianity is suffering. And I never got to the reward. <laughs> and, and, and when I was done, in a way that only he could, uh, um, Jesse Stevens, who was training the team at that time, he pulls me aside and he goes, you know, uh, what you taught those kids is true, but you should have finished the passage. <laughs> so so uh, let's let Eric finish so that we can understand he's not uh, uh, anti-happy. I'm just saying that you're not promised happiness. Um, you're not promised anything in life except for persecution on the Christ on 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 the case of Christ. So for Christ's sake, you are persecuted. On Christ's sake, you will endure hardship. But He promises us the ability to endure. He promises us comfort and endurance, as as John 16 talks about. He promises us a joy that is found in the resurrection. And that, as we ask for things in the Father's name, as we um, continue our communion with God, that joy is made full. And that joy is everlasting. That joy cannot be taken away from us as believers because we are not the ones who hold that joy. Our spouses are not the ones who hold that joy. Our church does not hold that joy. It is God who holds that joy for us. And he will never take that joy away um, as long as we are in communion with him. So, so let's, um, 
let's kind of bring this back to the original conversation. And we've we've only scratched the surface. I think there's what a was whole the original conversation? It was about the the leadership. It was about the Bruce. If you play that song again, I'm hanging up. You know what? It might be it might be more fun. You know, because you're kind of a Debbie Downer right now. <laughs> um, but but let's let's bring this back for a minute and talk about so qualifications for leadership. So let me just ask you the question plainly. Um, do you think a divorcee qualifies for eldership? And by the way, we're not saying that if there's an elder in your church who is a divorcee who's been given the position that you shouldn't, you know, ignore their authority. No, the church has put them in that position. They've given them that authority. So let's be clear. This is the this is the view that Eric and I take. Go ahead. I think the nuance that is involved in the answer to this question. Um, surpasses the amount of time that we have left oh. not, not only like in the day like okay is, well, no no that, that, that's fine I'll, I'll answer it I, I say no no I uh, think I think husband of one wife uh, certainly it, it's referring to uh, the issue of polygamy but I think it strikes to uh, a, a a deeper principle which is which is the idea that marriage is a, a lifelong bond I think it can be broken I think divorce is real. And that when you get remarried, your your um, uh, covenant is now with that person. But I would say no. I I I think that's a disqualifier. I I agree to an extent. You have to look at each context. It, it really, I, you have to look at each um, each individual context because you think about this, man. I mean, you and I both um, came in the last couple of years to a church that is long established. And, and there's a benefit there in which you um, fall in on the work of a previous pastor in establishing leaders, in training up leaders. So you have that benefit. But if you're planting a church um, and you're going into a place, and, and let's face it, our country now and our world right now is a lot more like the early church and planting churches in, um, throughout the Roman Empire um, than maybe it was 50 years ago. So you're going to be most of our church plants should be in places in which the gospel isn't preached, um, where there is no gospel witness. And that being the case, you're going to come across. I spent um, uh, about eight months at an inner city church in Worcester, Mass. And, dude, most of the people there um, either were divorced or had kids well out of web. Like, I mean, you got, um, you know, how do you how do you tell a guy to. What do you tell tell a guy who has five kids with with a woman, with his girlfriend, and they've been together for ten years and they're living in the same apartment and they they have no plans to get married? I mean, these are real things. And now, granted, you tell them to get married, but you well, know, there are, challenges. there are challenges in that because there are real situations in how many many people rely on government assistance, um, which which I think is tragic in a sense. Um, and if they got married, they lose most of that government assistance. And, now and, and, I think, and I think we do need to clarify something here. This whole discussion we're having only applies to believers. If 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 you're right, if this if there's a a, a non-believer who's living with his girlfriend, I have nothing to say about that. Amen. Right. This is about yeah. someone who's in our church who confesses faith in Christ. Yeah. Um, that then we I think we need to clarify that because otherwise it gets it gets into the issue of. You know what Paul says in First uh, Corinthians five. Well, what do you have? Why would you judge people outside the church? Right. Judge people inside the church. Right. Right. Yeah. You can't. You can't be upset with non-Christian people acting non-Christian. 
go pass I, non-Christian. Like that's that's up to you. I I, I think though to Moose's point, but it is right in in obviously with grace and compassion and understanding and and taking each situation as unique. I think it is important that we that we pass proper judgment on Christians acting like non-Christians, which I think comes back to the point that Moose made. Um, even about divorce. So there are various positions on divorce, and, and we can have that discussion, and I can sit across, I can take communion, you know, with someone who takes a different biblical view of divorce. However, can we all acknowledge that it's a bad thing, that even when it's necessary, that it's harmful, that it's, sometimes it's something that maybe you have to do, but it's not something good, and certainly when it's done unnecessarily, it's sin. Yeah. And but, yeah. hey, but we also we also don't need. I think what can often happen too is that we treat people um, that have a have something public like that happen. So you know, um, you know, divorce, um, having a child at, before marriage, or something like that. Um, we can often the church treat them as pariahs, mm. and that to me is worse than the sin that you're treating them as a pariah for. Yeah, because in the household of God, yes, we should. There's accountability. There's church discipline. There's all that stuff. But first and foremost, you should be caring for their souls. And no one is a no one's a pariah in the household of God when they've been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. Yeah. All right, we we covered a lot today. Should we uh, should we hit the catechism and call it? I feel like I feel like we we didn't even really. Man, there's so much more to say, but I think for today, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to call it. I, I'm ready to call it. I have one thing that I want to give for our listeners. This is a gift from me to you in honor of the NHL season.